Well, as we come to God's Word together now, I, uh, I want to thank uh, Brad and Tony for ably handling his word the last uh, two weekends and have heard good words regarding their ministry. I uh, also uh, came back from Israel with Moses' revenge and uh, have been more head cold than anything, so I uh, am on medication and I'm going to do the best that I can here for you. And so we'll see how that goes. This was, I'm not sure which trip to Israel for me. I've been, I've been blessed to be many times and uh, have been many times with our tour guide on this trip. And it was, again, a, uh, such an inspiration to be there with Dr. Wilbur Williams, uh, who led the tour and is a man that I consider the godliest man I've ever known in my life. And he's just one of these people that when you are with him, he inspires you uh, to live better and to love the Lord more. And in some ways, he is like the character that we're going to uh, learn about today. Her life for centuries has been one that has inspired God's people to live better and to love the Lord more. And I hope that today, the fruit of our time in God's Word is that for you, and that she may once again have her profound effect upon God's people. So here we are in our series, I Met Jesus, uh, Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John. And we've studied many people over these months, and we have a, a, a few more to go. And uh, the ones that we have yet to go are ones that... Uh, come into the story primarily at the end of Jesus' life and make their mark upon the story of Christ near the end of his earthly tenure. So we have uh, yet before us uh, Pilate, Judas, Thomas, and John. And then we will be fini with this series. So we're in the final stretch. And today we have the challenge of learning about a woman that we already know a lot about. And that is always a hard thing when you're studying the Bible uh, because we immediately go into certain uh, preconceptions that we have about somebody. We sort of revert to what we've heard before. And let's try not to do that, particularly with this woman. She is, other than Jesus' mother Mary, she is the best known and most loved woman in all of the Gospels. Yet, I think what is really uh, intriguing about her is the backstory of her life. And I would suspect the vast majority of us don't know that story. And the importance of this, it is her backstory that explains what she is famous for, which is her devotion and her loyalty to Christ. So, to tell her story today, I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture. I hope the Christians here don't mind the reading of a lot of scripture, and I'm going to do that. But I'd like today to introduce you to Mary Magdalene. I googled Mary's name this week in preparation just to see what popped up, and I discovered that Mary Magdalene has her own website. She has her own Wikipedia entry. She has uh, achieved sainthood. She has churches that are named after her. There is an ancient Gnostic gospel that is named after her, and there is even a rock band 
named Mary Magdalene. She still makes news to this day. You may recall just a couple years ago when Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, came out. One of the reasons it was so scandalous is that he suggested in the novel that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married. Now, all of this is very surprising or would be very surprising, I think, to Mary Magdalene, particularly given her background, which she knew and understood, but which is lost, I think, largely on the church. Mary was a woman, listen now, Mary was a woman with a very painful and broken past. And I suspect just in saying that, I have the attention of a few women in the room today who have a broken and painful past. Her life before Christ was the stuff of mockery and whispering. She was ostracized from society and her family. We would say it this way, maybe about her. She had a lot of baggage. She had a lot of baggage. And what makes Mary Magdalene so unique is that it is her baggage that explains her devotion to Christ. And that's where we're going here today. And to understand this, what I want to do is I want to talk about Mary Magdalene in terms of B.C. and A.C. Okay? B.C. before Christ, A.C. after Christ. You got that? B.C. before Christ, A.C. after Christ. That's the basic outline of the message. So let's talk about Mary Magdalene, B.C. Here we go. And John doesn't actually talk about this, but Luke does in his gospel. And so I'm reading from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Soon afterward he, this would be Christ, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, these would be the disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Let's begin by just simply making sure we know which Mary we're talking about here, because there are a number of Marys in the Bible. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. There is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, who gave the extravagant gift that we've talked about uh, for in the, in the weeks uh, previous. So it's not that Mary that we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Mary, which verse 2 says, was called Magdalene. Now, you may think that Magdalene was her last name. It makes sense. Mary's her first name. Magdalene's her last name. My first name's Steve. Last name's DeWitt. We all have a first name and a last name, Mary Magdalene. But in reality, that was not her last name. It is somewhat like Jesus the Nazarene. Why was Jesus called the Nazarene? Because he was from the town of Nazareth. Okay, Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. Mary Magdalene was called Magdalene because she was from the town of Magdala. Okay? So you learn a lot about somebody by knowing where they're from, and indeed that's the case with Mary Magdalene. She was from the little town of Magdala, which was a small town. uh, I shouldn't say a small town. It was actually an important town on the Sea of Galilee. Now what's particularly fun for me is that about... 
10 days ago, I was right there. In fact, we got on a boat in Tiberias and we, I would say sailed, but it was a powered boat. We sailed along the shore of the Sea of Galilee up to near Capernaum where we got off the boat. And so it's kind of fun for me to see that because I was just there a few days ago. And we sailed right by Magdala. And you know what I saw when we went right by Magdala? Nothing. It's not there anymore. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't an important city because in the day it was. Let me tell you a little bit about Magdala. You'll notice, of course, it's on the Sea of Galilee. So it was a fishing uh, boating kind of community. In fact, it was known for its pickled fish. Now you'd be like, oh, pickled fish. That doesn't sound good at all. Listen, pickled fish is better than no fish at all, right? And they didn't have refrigeration. And so to pickle meat and to disperse it was a very lucrative industry. And Magdala was a very wealthy town. It was also known for its artists and artisans. And so Magdala, to be from Magdala was, was kind of cool. I mean, it, it was a town that had a certain, we would say maybe a panache about it. It had a, a, a certain je ne sais quoi about it. I would compare it to being from Iowa, something like that. <laughs> so do you got it? Mary from Magdala, Mary Magdalene. Now, more important to the story here is Mary's spiritual condition while she lived in Magdala. And sometimes, you know, you read through the Gospels and you can kind of zip by details that are very important to the story. And I think we do that in Luke chapter 8. Let's go back and very carefully notice what is said about Mary. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. What do we learn about the great Mary Magdalene, the famous Mary Magdalene? What was she like B.C.? Friends, let's grapple for a moment with the fact that Mary, in her life before Christ, was wholly under the control and the oppression of demons. Now, when I say that, maybe there's some of you that are kind of like, I, it sounds a little bit archaic, you know, to talk about being under the control of demons. Uh, and indeed, in our culture, our very sophisticated, our very scientific culture, this is not a popular thing to do. If you were on TV, you know, a, a news show or something, and you began to talk about demons and Satan and all the rest, there would be people that probably would be smirking and smugly sort of laughing at the thought, oh, you're so out of date, you're so old-fashioned, we're way too sophisticated for that. In fact, as an example of this, I heard this week of a leading scientist and a leading astronomer who as a result of studying his particular area of expertise, began to believe that there must be some kind of intelligent design behind what he was studying. And the fruit of that was that the other scientists found out about it and he was fired because he thought that maybe there might be somebody who actually put this whole thing together. And of course, to, to suggest that is to suggest that there is something beyond the physical world, that there is another world, that there is maybe a spiritual world. Now, here we are 
And if we believe that the Bible is an accurate source of truth and reality, which of course here at the church we do, the Bible doesn't blush to talk about the fact that there is a world that we cannot see and that there are beings in that world that we cannot see. And yet those beings are active in this world. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Are there demons? Is there a Satan? The Bible says absolutely yes. Demons are, the Bible tells us, demons are fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God and are now the sworn enemy of all things that that God is and that he is doing. They hate God and they're bound to continue their rebellion against him. So the Bible talks then in terms of the demons as having the ability to control, to oppress, to manipulate people. And how they do this exactly is a mystery to us, but there is some kind of collaboration with the will of the individual in terms of, or in in which they are now under the influence of this demon, of this enemy of God. In fact, the Bible describes 11 people who were controlled by demons, including Judas Iscariot in Luke 22, 3. Now, I turned to Wayne Grudem for a little bit of help on this and his systematic theology, and he very helpfully points out the fact that sometimes people talk about demon possession. They're possessed by demons. He says the Bible never talks about it in these terms where we we are possessed by demons. Rather, we are under the influence of them. And that influence is so strong where an individual is actually doing and fulfilling the will of the enemy of God. So to be under demon oppression is a devastating experience. And the Bible gives us one very good example of this in Mark 5. The man, the Gadara man, the demoniac man, who, I'll read the text. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Another passage describes him as just walking around naked, so powerful he could break chains And the people just left him alone. And there he was crying out day and night under the influence of these demons. Now, you look at that passage. Why? Let me just ask this question. Why do you suppose somebody who is being controlled by demons would want to harm their body? And again, we got to think about this doctrinally, right? They hate God. And that means they hate everything that looks like God. And who are we? We are made in the image of God, right? Every time a demon sees us, they see what God is like. And that includes our body. And so that man under the control of those demons would cut himself, would bruise himself, would try to contort this image, the body. Demons hate him, so they hate us. They hate the gospel. They hate the church. They hate Christians. The Bible talks about how demons try to manipulate even the church through false teaching to get to slightly get us away from what is the true gospel. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, describes them as the doctrine 
of demons. Now, friends, here's why this is so important as we talk about Mary Magdalene. What would the life of a woman be like who is under the influence of seven demons? Seven is typically the number in the Bible of perfection or completion, totality. And it would seem to indicate that she was completely under the control of these demons. What would her, what would her life be like? Can you imagine the anguish of her heart? The cry of her soul? The emotional and the psychological pain that she would have gone through? The lack of peace in her life? The lack of wholeness in her life? The spiritual agony? She was made in the image of God. She was made to have a relationship with God. And yet the most intimate relationship in her life is with a demon. What is that like for a woman? And if the demoniac, the Gadara demoniac, is any indication, her behavior would have been so bizarre that people would have been scared of her and would have separated from her. So imagine Mary there in Magdala. And she's lonely. She's by herself. She's acting bizarrely. People are whispering about her. She's experiencing fear. And what I want you to realize is that before Mary was Mary Magdalene, she was Mary the demoniac, Mary the crazy woman, Mary likely the immoral woman. She was a woman in tremendous pain. She suffered in her B.C. days. And somewhere in the recesses of her soul, no doubt, she cried out for freedom. Now, friends, I'd like to just ask you a second. What were your BC days like? Do you remember? Do you remember what that was like before Christ brought freedom to you? Do you remember what your behavior was like as you tried to fill that ache in your heart with things of this world, what were you like? Immoral? Profane? Violent? Angry? Doing violence to your own body in some way? Here's how Titus 3.3 describes B.C. days. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What were you like, B.C.? Now, some of you maybe grew up in a Christian home and you've known the Lord since you were a kid. And right now you're like, I'm struggling to think about that because I was seven and there wasn't much sex, drugs, and rock and roll when I was seven. And you know what? That is a challenge that second and third generation Christians have. And I think it's one reason often second and third generation faith is so pathetic and apathetic is because we do not realize what God has saved us from. And that's why in Israel, what do you see? You have the people that experience the grace of God in the story. And then their kids come along and they couldn't give a rip. They don't realize what God has saved them from. And I say that to you and I say that to me because I came to faith, I believe, when I was a six-year-old boy. And so it's harder for us to realize what God has saved us from. 
And yet we have to think about this theologically. That I was a sinner. That I was apart from God. That if God's grace had not come to me and my depravity had flowered in the rest of my life, the pain and the sorrow that would have come to me. And so young people, if you're growing up in a Christian home, i got to tell you, you are immensely privileged because you are, by coming to faith in Christ and following Him, you are avoiding the pain that your depravity would otherwise create in your life. But don't be apathetic about it. Realize what God has saved all of us from. And Mary Magdalene got that. Her life was pain. Her life was sin. Her life was anguish. Her internal, as a woman in particular, just think of all of what it would mean to be alone. That was Mary Magdalene. A life of total brokenness and pain. And then one day, this young rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth came walking into Magdala. And the Bible doesn't tell us the story, but I can sort of imagine how this would have happened. Magdala is right on the route. If he was going from his hometown of Nazareth to where he lived in Capernaum, he had to walk through Magdala. So here comes Jesus walking through Magdala. And somehow there is an an intersection between Jesus and this Mary. And what does the... What does a woman who is oppressed by seven demons look like? I see her as unkept, don't you? Maybe her clothes tattered. She's in rags, her hair. Have you ever noticed that sometimes a woman who's lived a hard life, it's written all over her face? What does Mary look like? Her face just shows a life of pain. And into Magdala walks Jesus, and he takes a look at Mary, and he doesn't see her like all the other townspeople. He sees past the face. He sees past the pain. And he goes down into the soul of her heart, and he sees a woman who wants to be free of it. And he speaks a word to her. Demons be gone. And if the Gadara demoniac is any indication, the text says that when Jesus cast the demons out of him, he suddenly was in his right mind. And for the first time, in fact, how long had it been since anybody treated Mary like a real person? Gave her any respect? Treated her like, like with love? Jesus of Nazareth did. And he set things aright within her and suddenly she was in her right mind and standing before her is a man whose words had authority over demons and in that moment she went from bc to ac and her life was never the same mary the demoniac became mary magdalene so let's talk about mary ac Oh, what a difference Jesus can make. Amen? What do we find? Well, I just would like to highlight some qualities that marked Mary's life. And the first quality, we go back to Luke chapter 8. Again, it says, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their 
means. Somehow, in spite of her demonic oppression, this Mary was well-to-do. And we don't know how. She might have inherited it. Magdala was a very wealthy city. Somehow she had means. And she, along with other women from that area, traveled with the disciples and would provide for them by out of their own pockets and would meet the needs of Jesus and the disciples. You want to talk about a privilege, by the way. Imagine being able to travel with Jesus and have the privilege of meeting his needs out of your own pocket. They delighted to do it. That was Mary. Would B.C. Mary have done that? Would her life have had the mark of generosity about it? Uh, No. But A.C., it certainly did. And here is probably the next quality is what she is most known for. And that is that Mary had an amazing loyalty and devotion to Christ. And this is what I think has endeared her for centuries to Christians. Because, listen, do you realize in the story, let's just go ahead in the story now. It's the night that Jesus is is betrayed. They go from the upper room down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And all of a sudden, here come the, the Roman soldiers and Judas leading the group. When they arrive, what do the disciples do? They run, right? They run. Are they in the story anymore until after the resurrection? Only John remains faithful to some degree. But what do we find with Mary Magdalene? Let me show you. Let's talk about during his crucifixion and during his death. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now we're in John 19, verse 23. The Roman soldiers are there. They're treating Jesus like a plaything. They said to one another, let us not tear it, talking about his tunic, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Who's not there? Andrew's not there. Bartholomew's not there. Peter's not there. Who's there? Mary Magdalene is there at the cross. It continues. Jesus dies. Matthew 27, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. As Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea prepare his body for burial, who is there still with Christ? Mary Magdalene. It continued while Jesus was in the grave. Luke 23. The women who had come with with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So Mary Magdalene and and the other two Marys that are listed here, even after he's buried, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about Christ. 
They're, they're putting spices and things, getting it all together so that Sunday morning they can go and they can prepare his body finally for his burial. Are the disciples uh, doing that? No. How about the thousands of people who five days previous had rushed out to celebrate, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, waving palm branches, the whole city. Where are all those people at? They sang praises to Jesus five days earlier. They are nowhere to be seen. But who is there? Mary Magdalene is there. Was there any denial in Mary Magdalene? Was there any fear of what it would mean to be identified with an enemy of the Roman Empire? The same thing that caused Peter to deny Jesus three times meant nothing to Mary Magdalene. She stuck with him to the very end. And she even watched as that stone was rolled in front of the tomb to the very end. And now, the moment she's most famous for, early Sunday morning. She's the first to the tomb. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now friends, step into the moment here with me. She watches the stone go in front of the tomb. She goes home along with the others, preparing the final spices for to go back and to finalize the burial. They rest on the Sabbath according to the commandment. At first light on Sunday morning, who's thinking about Jesus? Mary Magdalene. She heads to the tomb. As she gets there, she sees that the large stone was thrown away. It was not just kind of rolled back, but it was thrown aside, actually. And when I was in Israel, we saw one of these ancient stones, and I will tell you, that was no small feat. They were big, they were heavy, and it could only mean in her mind that somebody had got in there and taken his body. So she doesn't even actually look in. She takes off running, goes to where Peter and John are, tells them somebody has taken his body. Peter and John now, Peter in particular, suddenly, first now showing up again after his betrayal, runs to the tomb. Peter and John arrive, they look in, they see the grave clothes, they don't see the body, they leave. Mary now arrives at the scene. And this is her defining moment. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she went, uh, wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Wonderful passage of scripture. Time does not allow an exposition, but I just want to point out a couple things. What was she doing as she stood out the t- outside the tomb? She was weeping. We see her passion and her devotion to Christ, do we not? What does she say when all of a sudden she realizes that it is Jesus that is standing before her? Rabona, it means beloved teacher, beloved rabbi. Again, a heart of devotion. But this is what I want us to see here today. What I want you to realize, friends, listen, everybody. Who was the first person who had the immense privilege of seeing the risen Christ? Who was the first person who had the privilege of speaking to the risen Christ? Who was the first person who had the privilege to touch the risen Christ? Who was the first person to have the privilege to announce the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Let's note who it wasn't. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. In fact, we could even ask the question, if you were Jesus, who would you go back first to see? Again, Maybe Peter, your right-hand guy. Maybe I'd show up to him first. Or how about John, my, the beloved disciple who used to lay his head on Jesus' shoulder? That's not a bad choice, I'd say. How about Pilate? How about the Sanhedrin? Hey, boys, what's on the agenda today? If, if I was Jesus, that's kind of who I would pick, I think. I'd be showing up going... He kind of did that, didn't he, when he was talking to them and they were beating him and he said, you know what, someday you're going to see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. I sort of like that moment right there. But, I mean, think about it. Who would you expect Jesus would give the eternal privilege of being the first to see, to speak, to touch, and to announce that he is alive again? And my dear friends, I want you to realize the person who had this privilege was the former demoniac, Mary Magdalene. And the big point of this message is now before us, and it is simply this, that when God forgives us, he really forgives us. Amen. Amen. He does not hold our B.C. days against us. That when we come to faith in Christ and we receive forgiveness from him by virtue of what Christ did on the cross, that those sins most truly are washed away. When we are A.C., our B.C. is not held against us.
And I think there's no better illustration in all the Bible than the former demoniac woman being the first to see the risen Christ. Which I think ought to ask us or cause us to ask this question. Why? Why did Jesus give her this privilege? And I think the answer to that is found in her loyalty and her devotion to Christ. Her heart was completely for Jesus. And where did that heart and devotion come from? I believe that it came, I'm going to quote Jesus from Luke 7, He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Mary Magdalene had been forgiven much. She had collaborated with the enemy. She was under the control of the enemy, the sworn enemies of God. Her life, immoral, bizarre, crazy woman. And she never got over that. And it created in her a profound gratitude and a love for Christ. And I would submit to you today, my dear friends, that the same thing is true in the room right now. That if we could see the hearts of everybody here and sort of get a measure of where our devotion and our love for Christ truly lies here this morning, the one determining factor would be how much do we realize that God has forgiven us? Have we gotten over that somehow? And if my faith today and my zeal for God is at low ebb, I can tell you why. It is because I have forgotten what God has done for me in Christ. And so if you are here today and you're like, you're, you're apathetic, your passion is low, why not take a moment of serious reflection and think about what Christ has done for you? And what your life was like, B.C. And what your condition, even if you came to faith as a a child, what your condition was before God, before Christ. And that will produce, like Mary Magdalene, a profound gratitude and love and a zeal and a loyalty that stands up to the end. I was praying about this message and I got thinking about how often when I read the Bible, I sort of like put myself in the story. Like I imagine if I would have been there in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers came, you know, would I, would I have been one who stood with Jesus or not? And oftentimes we give ourselves too much credit, I think, when we see that and see ourselves as heroes in the story because we'd like to think that we would be devoted to the end, like Mary Magdalene. And then a coworker comes up and says, are you a Christian? We're like, <gasps> If you can't stand up to the secretary at work for your faith, there's no way you're standing for a Roman cohort coming to arrest you. We are all too often not Mary Magdalene. We are the fleeing, fearful disciples. Mary knew what Jesus had done for her, and she was loyal to him to the end. And that is what her example ought to inspire in us and to, and to humble us to realize who we are apart from Christ and then to rejoice in what Christ has done for us and to realize that he has set us free. 
And so I would say Mary Magdalene is an emblem of Jesus' mission in the world. This is what he's wanting to do for all of us. You might be here today and you're still B.C. You identify more with Mary prior to meeting Jesus than after. Your life has pain in it. Your life is immoral. Your life is violent and angry. You're searching for something. You're searching for peace. You're wondering where you can find it. You have come to the right place, not because we have it, but because Christ offers freedom to all who will believe in him and his work on the cross on our behalf. And the fruit of that and the testimony of many people in this building right now is that Christ will set us free and give us the gift of eternal life. Praise him for that. Praise him. (laughs) And so I would invite you to believe and to receive this faith, this gift of salvation by trusting in Christ as your Savior. But if you are a Christian here, I think the challenge is to look at Mary Magdalene and to realize how anemic our loyalty and our devotion all too often is. And to, like Mary, go back to our days in Magdala and to remember what that was like and to never get over the moment that Jesus spoke freedom into our life and let that produce a life of devotion and a life of passion and a life of service and a life of giving and a life of love as an act of worship to him. So may Mary inspire that in all of us and may we be a church who never forgets Magdala. Amen. Would you pray with me, please?